Uh, we're turning now to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I, as we turn to this, I think Paul has a, a heart that's breaking as he writes these things. He, he seems at times to be quite angry as well, but I think he's mostly brokenhearted over these folks. As he writes to the Corinthians, he, uh, he finds them living so far beneath the standards of God, so far beneath the provisions of God, so far beneath their spiritual riches that uh, it's hard for him to, to handle that at times. It, it just kind of uh, uh, shocks him, I think. Uh, they're, they're living sub-Christian lives in many ways, and Paul points that out uh, repeatedly. The influence of the church had moved into the church at Corinth, and the gospel of the, that the church of Corinth should have been propagating, and the life that they should have been exemplating was not happening among these people, and they were not living as God wanted them to live. We're going to do a little imagination today. Uh, I, as you get older, they say your imagination drifts away. So some of you might not be able to stay with me. We'll see how old you are. This will be a test, all right? So I'm, I'm going to imagine today that we're going to go back in time. I don't know how many of you have ever thought about how... I, I've always found that fascinating. What if you could actually go back in time? Years ago, I read H.G. Wells' book, The Time Machine, and I found that kind of fascinating. So we're going to jump on H.G. Wells' time machine this morning. And we're going to travel back to 56 A.D. to the church at Corinth. Uh, we've heard many good sermons from pastors and so forth who've told us how vibrant the Christian life was in the first century and how we ought to, to follow that example. So we're kind of interested in going back to Corinth and checking out this church and looking at this vibrant Christianity that is supposed to be there. So we get in his, uh, his machine, we drop off at Corinth, and we find ourselves on the corner of Zeus and Ulysses. And remember, this is all imagination, so follow along with me. Uh, we, we find some small shops here and there. Uh, one, one merchant is selling fish. Another is selling small statues of the goddess Artemis imported all the way from Ephesus. An, another is peddling tickets to the Ismanian Games, which is second only to the Olympics. Uh, across the street is a used camo dealership. Uh, they're having problems getting in camos right now because they're lacking chips. Uh, but... Uh, but that's there on the corner. Uh, we asked the guy selling the idols about the church at Corinth. And he says, what is a church? And then we remember our Greek, the word for church is ecclesia. And so uh, we asked about that. He says, oh, I never heard of that. He said, I said, well, uh, what about, uh, have you heard of people that uh, worship Jesus Christ? And he said, I've never heard of Jesus Christ either. So that kind of sets his back. But he said, you know what? The guy at the used camel shop, across the way, the dealership there. He knows everything and everyone. So if anybody knows, he knows. So we try to cross the street to the uh, camel dealership. He tries to sell us a two-hump used camel, but we refuse. And after a little bit of discussion, this is all imagination. I hope your brain's working here. <laughs> after we refuse, we begin to ask him about the church. I said, oh, yeah, I know about the church. I've heard about that. I know about those people. And... Uh, that, that encourages us. So what do, you, what do you know about them? He said, well, first of all, don't get involved with them. And so we think to ourselves, well, he is probably feeling rebuked by the godliness of their lives. And therefore, he doesn't want to be around them. He doesn't want us to be around them. Uh, but uh, we, we, as we follow up, we find that that is not the case. Uh, we ask, why is it that you don't think we should get involved? And he says, well, they claim to be so different. They claim to be pure and holy. They claim to be loving people. But you know what? They're no different than the rest of us. They're just pure hypocrites. Well, you know, people can say that all the time, right? You'll see that on Facebook. You'll, you'll see that uh, in, in different comments. And that's easy to say, but we want particulars. 
Uh, what, what makes you think they're hypocrites? What makes, makes you think they're not living the life that, uh, that Jesus Christ told them to live? And so he, he begins to tick off different ways in which uh, they are not living out the example of Christ and why he doesn't think we ought to be involved with them. And by the way, as we get there, we're getting a little closer to Scripture now. The next several steps, the things he's going to tell us, is virtually an outline of what Paul has said for the first six chapters. So if you're taking note, you'll find this is a table of contents for the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians. So we find, first of all, he says they have the same philosophy of life, the same value system, the same mindset, the same worldview that all of us out here do. They're no different than us. That's chapter 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians. Then he says they're constantly fighting. They're arguing over who is the greatest. That's chapter 3. Uh, who are their heroes? We, we overhear them uh, in the, the, the windows out of their houses. They met in houses, you know. And we overhear them arguing about who's the greatest of the spiritual leaders. Is it Paul? Is it Apollos? Is it Peter? Who is it? And they're just arguing over who's the greatest leader. And you would think that if they're followers of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ would be the one they would follow, not Paul or Apollos or Peter. But they're arguing about this kind of stuff on a regular basis. And they're always bragging about how spiritual they are, and yet they're openly critical of, of their founder, Paul. That's chapter 4. Uh, you would think that a man who came here about six years ago and started this church, spent a year and a half ministering here among these people, gave everything to them that they would absolutely adore him, but they don't. They're resisting him. They're challenging him. They're criticizing him. That, that just doesn't seem right. But that's what they're doing. Chapter 4 tells us about it. And then chapter 5, it gets worse. They have a case of immorality, an, an in, a case of incest that is so abominable that not even the worst of us do this in our culture. Nobody does what's going on there. And not only is it there, but the church allows it. They look the other way and they actually feel like they're being loving by not saying anything. A little bit later on in chapter 6, we'll find out that they also, some of the men were visiting temple prostitutes. Uh, they had uh, somehow twisted in their brains the, uh, and rationalized that they could do that because their body and spirit were separate and their spirit was following Christ, but their body not. And, and they, they rationalized that. But you know, that is so wrong. Plus, the temple prostitutes are involved with the, the pagan religions that we worship, that these pagan deities. And, and that's just the opposite of the God they claim to worship, the, the one God found and, and the Son, Jesus Christ. And then, as we go back to the text we'll look at today, they, we find them suing one another in open court over the most trivial things. Uh, they're taking one another, people in their own church, and going down to the courts, and they're suing one another and, and, and so forth. As a matter of fact, he says, the guy over there selling the tickets to the Ismanian Games, and the guy over there, uh, he's suing the guy over here that sells fish, because he says the guy who sells fish is, is not advertising properly the weight of the fish. They're, they're not as heavy as he says they are. He's suing him over that. And that's chapter 6. So we're kind of ashamed after that. I mean, he's, he's bringing up the particulars. So we head back to our time machine. And we return to the 21st century thinking, you know, maybe the 21st century isn't as bad as we thought. And, uh, but we're ashamed. And we're, we're holding our heads down as we see what's going on in this church. What's wrong with this church? This is the first century church founded by the Apostle Paul. They have the Word of God. They have the Holy Spirit. Something has gone radically wrong in this church in the first six years of its existence. Uh, 
How could they sue one another? What an example of their, of their uh, immaturity and their, of their sinfulness. What an example to sue one another in open courts. Well, they could do that, as we're going to see as we move back to the text now. They could do that because, unfortunately, they have forgotten who they are and who they belong to. So the essence is not simply the activities, the actions, but they, have, they don't remember, they don't recall, they conveniently have forgotten who they are and who they belong to. They're selfish. They're self-centered. And Paul's going to show us the evidence of that self-centeredness in the passage in front of us. First of all, in the first four verses, they're willfully ignorant. Willfully ignorant of who they are. Look at verse 1. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that, that saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? Now, what I want you to note here as we begin this is the, the repetition of the term or the phrase, do you not know? Six times in this chapter, he will say, do you not know? We see two of them here in verse 2 and verse 3. Drop down to verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? We'll look at that next time. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are the members of Christ? Verse, that's 15. Verse 16. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? And verse 19, one of the best of these, one of the most important, is our, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own, for you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Do you not know? This is their, their foundational problem. It's not they had not been taught. The Apostle Paul had taught them these things. They knew these things. And so when he says, do you not know, he is saying to them, why have you chosen not to know these things? Why have you chosen to resist these things and, and willfully forget these things? Do you not know? And it's because you do not know that you're having the problems and the sin issues in the church that you're having. Uh, there's a self-centered ignorance, ignorance here, self-chosen ignorance, let me say that. For them. Let, let me give you some examples of that. Going back to the first verse, let's begin with that, and even before that. Here, here's some of the reasons we know that they are a self-centered church. They, they have willfully forgotten what they should have known. I believe for one reason, they didn't want to live the way they ought to have lived. And it was convenient for them to shut down the truth and march on to do their own thing, rather than knowing the truth and living it. So that's what they've done. Now, how do we know that? Well, first of all, the, the conflicts. We've mentioned that before. The church was riddled with conflicts. There was quarrels throughout. Uh, we find that throughout the entire book. One conflict, one quarrel, one fuss after another. Secondly, uh, they're suing one another. Now we're back to our text. They're suing one another over petty issues in a secular court. We don't know what the issues are. Paul doesn't tell us, and probably rightly so. Otherwise, we say, oh, that's not our situation. And so he leaves it general, but they're suing one another in the secular court system over something. And as we see as we're going forward, it's not what they ought to be doing. The whole church 
has also failed. It's not just the individuals that are suing, but the church is allowing this. Uh, he's speaking to them in general. The church is not dealing with this sinful conflict that has, uh, that has resulted in suing one another in court. As a result of that, the whole church has been smeared by these things. It, it's kind of like uh, when something gets out of the open that shouldn't be. A, a few years ago, I read in the newspaper about a, a, a mother who was dying of cancer. She had two sons. This was local. She had two sons who wouldn't go visit her at the same time because they wouldn't talk to each other. And whatever the reason for them not talking to each other, we sit back and look and say, what is wrong with these people? Is, is that impress anybody? That, that these two sons will not even talk to one another? Not even come to visit their mother together? Is anybody impressed with that? Does anybody think that's cool? And yet that's the kind of thing that can happen in our homes, our, our churches, our lives. And this was happening at this church. And then there's one more thing. Uh, that Paul is showing their selfishness, not only the conflict and the suing, but, but the very shock value of what they're doing. He says in verse 1, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare? I want you to look at that word. That's a strong word. Dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Do you dare to do this? How, how uh, arrogant are you that you would dare to go to court against a brother or sister in Christ? Because you want your own way. This backs up actually to verse 13 of chapter 5. He says, but those on the outside God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Uh, he is showing there that the whole church needs to be involved here. It's not just an individual or two. It's a whole church needs to be dealing with these things. This should not be allowed among the body of Christ there. And so here were Christians. At least they were claiming to be Christians. Remember at the end of chapter uh, 5 verse 11 he was talking about that one individual and, and others on after that who were so-called Christians or so-called brothers he called them meaning that they make a profession of Christ they claim to be Christians but their life is not demonstrating that and so he says I'm not going to pronounce judgment there I don't know but I'm not so sure they're saved either and so he goes back to, to that issue and he says look at yeah, this church is allowing these kinds of things to happen among themselves. They're in constant conflict, even to the point of suing one another, ignoring open immorality and other sins, but suing one another in court. And, and these are the kind of Christians he's dealing with. And so they would sing, Blessed be the ties that bind. We're going to sing that song at the end of the service. It's the old song that uh, says something about our fellowship. Blessed be the ties that bind. Bless God for the ties that hold us together in the fellowship of Christ wrapped around Jesus Christ. And so they would sing a song like that together on a Sunday, and then they would walk out on Monday and live as if Christ didn't matter for the rest of the week. That is so common in Christianity beyond throughout the ages that, of course, we have a phrase called Sunday morning Christians. Uh, of course, fortunately not every Christian's like this by any means, but there's too many who can say all the right things on Sunday morning, sing the songs, smile at everybody, and then live, the, live a totally unchristian life throughout the rest of the week. My friends, that should not be. And all of us need to examine our life among, uh, in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, in our families, and in other places outside of the church. I first ran into this type of thing when I was in my late teenage years. I, I'd grown up in a, a very good church, and everybody there I thought just walked on water. I just absolutely adored 
people from all age brackets. They were gracious to me, good to me, trained me in the scriptures, loved me when I was a little stinky boy doing bad things, and I, I just loved them to pieces. I never thought about such Christians. And then in my latter teenage years, I began to uh, take jobs uh, at uh, small businesses owned by members of the church there. And uh, I, over the next several years, I worked for three different employers, all who went to, this, to our church, all who I'd seen at church for years, smiling, singing songs, slapping the pastor on the back, laughing at his corny jokes and all those good things. And when I worked for them, I found they didn't live like Christians. Matter of fact, they were the most despicable people at the workplace. That could have shaken my faith to the core, to tell you the truth. It didn't, I think because of my family and because of the love I had for so many others. But that, that rocked me, folks, that these people claimed to be Christians, acted like Christians on Sunday, and didn't live it throughout the, life, the, the week and in the work world. That's what we have here, I think. These people could put on a good show on Sunday, but wouldn't put in on much of a show throughout the week. I want to say this, just to back off just a little bit as we go forward. I, I don't think this passage is giving us a, a complete... Uh, rock-solid case where a Christian can never sue uh, another Christian. I think, uh, and, and certainly we can go to court. Paul, Paul himself uh, appealed to Caesar. Uh, Paul himself uh, appealed to the Roman justice system, but he never went to court against believers. He never sued believers. He never took a matter that, uh, concerning them to court. It's a sin and a, is a disgrace to do so, but I would give this caveat, there are certain circumstances where it might be necessary, and I'm thinking there of criminal issues, when there's actual criminal things that might have to be dealt with by the law, or when there is abuse, sexual abuse, or that type of thing, where there, there has to be a, a legal recourse. And this would not be a personal suing for my own benefit, it would be something that is necessary for proper justice. So we have to think that through a little bit. But Paul is looking at the, the general case of me trying to get my piece of the pie because somebody else won't let me have it and I'm going to court for it. Those are forbidden. And I'll come back to another application a little later. But I want to go on and, and see what he's talking about here. He says, he gives his first do you not know in verse 2, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world, and if the world is judged by you, you're not, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? He's saying, now he says an interesting thing here, which we find in no other passage of scripture. I, I don't know where else you would go to on this. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now, in what sense will I, as a Christian, judge the unbeliever? That's what he speaks of here as the, as the world. In what, in what way am I involved in judging the unsaved, and when and where will that happen? And Scripture doesn't help us much there. Uh, our best guess would be at the great white throne judgment, Rome, Revelation chapter 20, when all the unbelievers of all ages will gather before the Lord and be judged for eternity. And somehow, some way, apparently, we're going to be involved in that. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what we will do. But uh, apparently, that is where we would take pl that would take place in what we're doing. Secondly, he talks about verse three, judging angels. Do you not know that you will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Uh, 
now, now we're really in the weeds here. In, in what sense are we going to judge angels? Uh, first, we have to assume that we're talking about the angels who are fallen. Uh, the angels that followed Satan in his rebellion. We see them in uh, Revelation chapter 12 and in other places. And these angels will ultimately be judged. And somehow we're going to partake of that. I want you to go to, to um, 1 Peter chapter Second uh, Peter chapter two verse four. Second Peter two four. We have an interesting verse here. Peter writes, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, so these are fallen angels in Scripture often called demons. If he did not spare them when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now the word for hell here, translated hell, is is the word Tartarus, and it's the only time in all of Scripture that word is found for the subject of hell. So this is not the hell that scripture says unbelievers go to. Revelation chapter 20. It's a different word. And apparently is some place for a holding tank of some sort. A prison of some sort. For at least certain of the fallen angels. And they're reserved there it says. They, they're reserved in the pits of darkness. Reserved for judgment. They're, they're committed to the pits of darkness, reserved for judgment. That means that right now they're in this holding tank, this prison house of some sort. But one day they will be judged. And so they're going to be judged and they'll be committed to eternal darkness, to eternal hell at that point in time, the lake of fire. This is the only possibility I can think of where Christians would be involved in judging angels where we will actually somehow be involved in that process. I do not know what that looks like. I don't know, do not know what would take place, but a scripture, this one verse of Scripture with almost blindsides us, doesn't it? Just out of the blue. It pops up. And when it does, we, we are told that we're going to judge angels. Now, we don't... So on these two cases, judging the world and judging angels, we don't have all the information we'd like to have. But we do have the big picture, Right? We see exactly what he's after. He is saying your, your, your minds and your eyes and your spiritual heart is all wrapped around the mundane. All wrapped around this world system. All wrapped around the things that, that you want for yourself. And so much so that you are willing to be, be in conflict to the point of suing one another to get what you want. He said the solution is to look above. To look beyond. To realize that ultimately you're going to have incredible, fantastic privileges to judge the world and to judge angels. And if you're going to do that, and you, by the way, chapter 2, verse 14, you have the mind of Christ. If you're going to do that, why can't you judge the issues at hand today? And so it's a picture of the greater uh, issue to the lesser. He is saying, if you can do that by God's grace, you can also take care of the issues you have here. Verse 4. Let's look at the takeaway. So, if you have law courts dealing with the matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? So, if you are going to judge angels, if you're going to judge the world, if you have the mind of Christ, then why would you turn to a, a system of law that is being handled by those that do not know Christ 
that do not have the mind of Christ, that do not have the Holy Spirit, that do not have the Word of God, to set in judgment on your situations when you should be doing it yourself. That's the takeaway that he's giving us here. In my uh, ministry over the years, I've not seen this particular thing played out very often. I hope it happens around the world on occasion. But I remember a situation many, many years ago now when I got a call from another pastor. And he said, uh, I have a man in my church who's in construction work. And you have a man in your church in construction work. And they are almost to the point of lawsuit over some situation. And they have asked us, as my, his, me as a pastor and he as a pastor, to arbitrate this. And so we, the four of us met together. We listened to the cases from both sides. When it was all said and done, we made a ruling. We chose that one man was right and one man was wrong. And there's several things I want to say about that. First of all, I want you to note, none of, neither that pastor or myself have a law degree. Neither one of us are judges. But you know what we did have? The mind of Christ. We had the Word of God. We had the Holy Spirit. And therefore, according to this passage of Scripture, we are better off in these kind of circumstances to deal with these things than the world is. When it was all said and done, uh, the man who lost that arbitration graciously said, I will go with this. Walked away, shook our hands, and never said another word about it. That was a wonderful, sweet moment. It was a sweet moment because here's two laymen, not two theologians, who had read 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and said, the best way to handle these kinds of things is to come before godly leadership. And they did. And they called the meeting. And we had the meeting. And the meeting was pleasant. And the end was pleasant. And that conflict went away. That's the way it ought to happen, folks. In every conflict, I'll look at that just at the end here, but in this particular case, it was a wonderful, sweet thing. It should happen more. Now, Paul is concerned, and he's showing them their selfishness, first of all, all because of their willful ignorance. They were ignoring that truth about who they were and how they should be living. Secondly, he, he uh, points to that because their selfishness because they are shameful. They are living shamefully. In verse 5, he says this, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man that will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. In verse 4, Paul is pointing out how ridiculous it is for them to do these things. In verse 5, now he tells them why he was rebuking them. And he says, because what you're doing is shameful. It is to your shame. Now it's interesting, if you flip back one page to chapter 4, verse 14, Paul was doing in a different context, a context of pride. And I want you to see what he says in verse 14. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you have... Uh, countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. We talked about that a few weeks ago, and he says, I'm writing to you as a father would write to a son or a daughter. I'm not bullying you, I'm not trying to shame you. But now we go over to the passage we're looking at now, he says, I am going to shame you. Why the shift in strategy? 
Well, in chapter 4, he's dealing with the sin of pride. Folks, pride is built into our DNA as fallen creatures. Until the day we die, we will battle pride. That it, we're not given an excuse to walk away. We're not given a reason to say, oh, I'm prideful, I can't do anything about it. That, that's exactly what Paul was dealing with in chapter 4. You need to deal with your pride. But until the Lord takes us home, we're going to be dealing with pride on a regular basis, aren't we? It's at the very core of our being. And so as it pops up in our lives, as we see it, and they would see it here, uh, then we need to deal with it. The difference in chapter 6 is what they're doing is not simply the DNA of pride in their lives. It is an active, willful decision to do something. They are willfully deciding that they will take an action against a brother or sister in Christ for their own benefit. That's different. And Paul says here, is this not, not a matter of dealing with everyday pride and the things you have to deal with? This is a decision you've made, and it's shameful. It's wrong. It's shameful because for you, it's shameful for your church, and it's shameful because you're shaming Jesus Christ, your Savior, who would not behave like that. And so he wants them to walk away with their heads down. He wants them to, to realize that they're doing a thing that is not honorable, it's not shame, not. Uh, what God would have us do is a slap in the face of God. Uh, so we need to recognize that uh, what we do as Christians, if we proclaim to be Christians, always reflects on our Savior, doesn't it? It reflects on our family, it reflects on our churches, it reflects on our Savior. Always. And we need to keep that in mind. Uh, years ago we had a van, a church van. I think one of the first church vans we had. And there was discussion at that time about putting the name of the church on the side of the van. And the discussion went like this. If we put the name on the side of the van and whoever drives it misbehaves, it'll be a reflection on our church. And that was a real concern with the people that were driving our van. So uh, we thought about putting the name of another church on there uh, when they drove, but uh, that didn't seem to be proper. So... We bought a mag- this is not, this is true. We bought a magnetic name sign that went on the door of the van, and we put it on the side of the van, Southern View Chapel, with the instructions for those that are driving it. If you decide you're going to speed, if you decide you're going to yell at the guy next to you for cutting you off, if you decide you're going to do something sinful, reach out, take the sign, put it in the van, then do your sinful thing. Now that was. A little bit tongue-in-cheek what we said to them. We don't want them to misbehave at all. But if you're going to do it, uh, don't shame the name of Christ. Let us just think it's you, right? So that's a little funny, but actually, we actually did that. Um, I don't know where the sign is. We probably need it now. I don't know. But uh, I, would, I would say this. I don't want to shame Christ. It's bad enough to shame me and you, but to shame the name of Christ. And yet we carry around Christ in us. That's what it says in verse 19 of this chapter, doesn't it? He's in us. We belong to him. We're not our own. And all that we do reflects on Jesus Christ. And that should be a constant remembrance for us. That we carry around Christ. And we, we, we are not to shame him. And these people were shaming the name of Jesus Christ for what they were doing. There's one more thing Paul wants to talk about here. Not only are they willfully ignorant, not only are they embarrassing God and themselves, but thirdly, they're accepting defeat. 
They're accepting defeat. Verse 7. Actually, then, it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brothers. No one wins. I catch this. No one wins when Christians openly fight with one another. They don't win, period, even in a private conversation. But they don't win when it becomes a public spectacle. Now, as I said in 1 Corinthians 5, if you're a, a preacher that just trying to get a, get a wonderful, encouraging message for you and a topical message every week, nobody would go to 1 Corinthians 5 ever. And I don't think many would go to 1 Corinthians 6. But if you're expositing the scriptures, going through the scriptures as God has given them, you, you have to deal with these issues. And so when you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you have a message that most people don't really care much about. But my friends, I say this for all, in all honesty, I sure wish a lot of them were did right now. We have scandal after scandal after scandal in the evangelical church movement right now. We have big time leaders suing one another, suing the institutions they came from. We, we have a, a, a denominations that are so much at war, not just difference of opinion, but the way they handle those opinions. That one God, un, just completely godless man this week, I would never believe anything he really said, but he compared one of the denominations that we have to the Taliban by the way they behave. Now, he's way over the top, right? Way over the top. But at the same time, he's pointing, this is what the unbeliever, at least some of them are saying. These Christians are handling their differences in the same way that the world handles their differences. Character assassination, lies and, and exaggerations, lining up battle lines, all these kinds of things we're seeing in the public eye right now. And it is shameful. When, when, uh, when some of these denominations had their conferences this year, uh, we discussed it on the staff at times. I said, I, I, I don't even want it to happen. I wish it'd just go away. Because I know exactly what's going to happen. The world's going to see this arguing and this conflict and this really godlessness in many cases. And they're going to walk away and say, that's what the church is like. That's what the people that claim they follow Jesus Christ is like. And that's a shame. There's got to be better ways to handle differences than what we're seeing recently. And some huge lawsuits from people that have been leading in evangelicalism for years just breaks your heart. So what does Paul say? Why not be defrauded? Why not let them have your money? Why, why do you have to be the one that wins all these? Why, how important is that to you? So I think this passage really is up to date to us. I think moral Christian leadership should read this kind of passage contemplate it and think it through doesn't mean we won't have differences doesn't mean those differences aren't important doesn't mean we need to uh, that we shouldn't debate them and deal with them and make decisions that, are, that everybody's not pleased with but there are ways of handling conflict that, re, that uh, are shameful to Christ and there's ways of handling conflict that lift him up and we need to get better at that and I feel there's a deterioration 1 Corinthians 6 is right up to date with the world, where the world is right now, I think. 
So he says in verse 7, he first turns to the one who's being defrauded, and he says, uh, it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits against one another. Why not be wronged? Why not be defrauded? Verse 8, he turns to the one who's, who's perpetrating all of this. On the contrary, you yourself wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brother. So both sides, those who are taking action against somebody and those who are, are being acted on. And he says, why are you fighting these things? Why are you doing this? Only, only the one who sees Christ is more important than the everyday life. In the material things here and the life here, only those that see something more in Christ will pay attention to a passage like this. But that's exactly where he's going throughout. He's saying, do you not know who you are? Do you not know your privileges and riches in Christ? Do you not know who you belong to? And when you know that, folks, and it's going back right back to the basics, when you know who you belong to and who you are in Christ, that should radically transform the way you react and interact with people. And there's no better testing ground than conflict. Because that's when we get our backs up. That's when we get angry. That's when we want to get even. That's when we want our own way. Do you not know who you belong to? Summary. If a, if a dispute between two believers cannot be settled among themselves, they should bring it to the godly people in the church or churches and abide by their ruling. If one of the parties refuses this route, it is better for them to lose than to dishonor Christ. Christ is more important. His ministry is more important. His people are more important than that I win in a particular conflict. The, Christian, the Christians at Corinth had conveniently forgotten their identity in Christ, and the result was the behavior that they had right here. They did not know who they were. They did not know who they belonged to. And the remedy is recognizing these things. Uh, about 20 years ago, a pastor friend, a good pastor friend of mine, was going through a great conflict in his church. And some of the people in his church were downright nasty. Uh, they, were, they were saying all sorts of horrible things about him. They were trying to destroy the church. And they had a business meeting one night. And uh, that particular contingency, which was the minority of the, of the church, but they were vocal and nasty, that particular contingency lost. And so they left the meeting. And uh, half an hour later, my pastor friend went out to go home. And in the parking lot, he met this contingency that started calling him all sorts of names. They had already egged his car and did all sorts of nasty things to that. And here he was, this godly man, walking to his car with this group of people in front of him, doing these things, egging his car. I said to him, what did you do? He said, nothing. I just got in my car and went home. And I knew right then I was in the presence of a better man than me. <laughs> that would not have been my first reaction. I'll tell you what. I, I say that to my shame. But I was in the presence of a man who was godlier than me. A man who realized that Jesus Christ was insulted and never said a word. A man who realized you don't win battles in that kind of environment. A man who wanted to honor Christ more than he wanted to honor himself. Now you and I will probably, probably never be sued like this by a Christian brother or sister. 
Some might, probably most of you will not. But you will be wronged. You'll be wronged by family members. You'll be wronged by Christians. You'll be wronged by friends. You'll be wronged by the world. You will be wronged, right? So how do you behave when that happens? How do you react? How should you react? This passage has at least a secondary application here. How do you react when someone has wronged you, who has slandered you, who has hurt you, and how do you react to that? I think the secondary application here, maybe the first, I don't know, is that when that happens, first and foremost, I remember who I belong to. I remember who I am in Christ. And I remember who I represent, Jesus Christ. And I, then I look at my life and I say, does it matter all that much that somebody else has wronged me? Is it really that important that I, that I get it right? That I, I stick for myself and I say, look, you know, you're wrong. I'm going to have a little revenge here. Is it that important? Or is it more important that Jesus Christ be lifted up? That he be honored? That even as somebody slanders me, I don't have to slander them. I think we're going to have plenty of opportunities like that. Let's pray. Father, I think of these things. I could give many examples right now of such things. I know many of our folks here have been hurt and harmed by people they thought loved them, people that was part of the church body, people in their families and so forth. And Lord, these are, this is part of, the, of life on this corrupt planet. And so we need to be prepared on how to deal with it. And you give us ample ammunition for that, Lord. Much teaching in the Word on how to deal with these things. We thank you for that. And Father, I pray today as we think about these issues, and you put this in your Word for a reason, that we would want to honor you with every facet of our lives because we do know who we are, and we do know to whom we belong, and we want to honor you with our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.